I will try to start us off here. I think. J- I J- James, James, do you have your smelling salts handy? <laughs> smelling salts. <laughs> I've been dosing myself regularly. Okay. <laughs> I, I, I don't think. Oh, wait, now are... you have a resistance to smelling salts. <laughs> <laughs> wait, wait, does that work like iocane powder? <laughs> Hosting and bandwidth provided by the Blue Box Group. Check them out at bluebox.net. This podcast is sponsored by New Relic. To track and optimize your application performance, go to rubyrogues.com slash newrelic. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the 97th episode of the Ruby Rogues podcast. Uh-oh, I think I said 97th, and Josh prefers it when I say episode 97 of the Ruby Rogues podcast. Um, Chuck's out today, sick, we're very sorry and hope that he feels better soon. David Brady is out today and we have no idea what he's doing, but the rest of us are here. I'll be your host, James Gray, and with me today is Avdi Grimm. Hello from Pennsylvania. Josh Susser. Uh, Yes, hi, I took a correspondence course in pedantics. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, Katrina Owen. Hello from Colorado. And also with us today is special guest Martin Fowler. Hello from Melting Boston. <laughs> Martin, this is the first time you've been on the show, so for the one person out there who doesn't know who you are, why don't you introduce yourself? Okay, well, I, I'm Martin Fowler. I refer to myself as a uh, author, speaker, and general loudmouth on the topic of software development. I've written more books than I would care to admit and uh, have a blog website you think at martinfowler.com awesome so, well, good morning and good morning and welcome to the show yeah yeah thank you for having me absolutely um so today we're going to talk about uh one of your books uh that you mentioned and that is patterns of the enterprise application architecture which is kind of a mouthful it is i i often wondered about that when i was working on the book, whether it was just too much of a mouthful, but I couldn't think of any more pithy title to go with, so I ended up going with it. It doesn't it, seem to have harmed the book, so. Well, it is a whole lot of, it, has, it is a whole lot of vowels in the acronym. <laughs> yep. You, you, you couldn't go with something uh, with, a, with a cute acronym like Pooter, right? <laughs> no. <laughs> no, I didn't, no, I didn't, I didn't worry too much about the, the acronym, I guess. So to kick this conversation off, I'd like to give one of my favorite quotes from the book. It, it says, and, and this was written, uh, you know, over a decade ago now, right? So, yeah. Uh, it says, the only reason I'm concentrating on Java and .NET environments is that they look like the most common platform for enterprise application development in the future. Although, I'd like to see the dynamically typed scripting languages, in particular Python and Ruby, give them a run for their money. Wow, did I say that? Yeah. Cool. <laughs> yes, that was a memorable quote for me, too. Yeah, and I've completely forgotten it. <laughs> I guess it's somewhere in the book. But, uh, <laughs> that, that yeah, I pay- guess at that time, I was actually just starting really with Ruby at the time I wrote the book. I only really started programming Ruby when the Pickaxe book came out. I mean, Dave and Andy had been going at me to say, you really ought to try Ruby. You'd love it. I know you'd love it. And I kept going, oh, no, not another frigging language. Um, <laughs> Python's kind of okay for my scripting needs. I don't really need anything else. And then I read the pickaxe books and I thought, ooh, this Ruby looks, Ruby looks really sweet. 
And uh, I steadily, all my personal programming work now, keeping the website going and the like, Ruby is the dominant language that I use to program that. I don't, however, program in Rails at all. I mean, I've read some books about Rails. I've looked at Rails code. Um, I keep intending to spend a really long time looking at one of our bigger code bases of Fortworks, but I've never actually programmed Rails seriously just because I haven't. I keep asking my wife, would you like a database-backed web application? And uh, <laughs> she, she doesn't say yes, so I haven't got around to writing it. <laughs> it, it isn't that like the 37th anniversary? Yeah, surely, surely it's one of them. It's like a three a three a three tier web application. It's like, <laughs> yeah. So, Martin, do you remember what your first Ruby program was, or maybe the first one of any significance? The first one of significance was when I had to fly to India for in the early days of Fortworks setting up in Fortworks India. And I thought I really would like to get on this blog thing that people are talking about, but I didn't really want to do the regular kind of blog stuff. So I had this vision of something that would be kind of part blog, part wiki, which turned, of course, into the blicky part of my website. And at that time, all the stuff for my website was based on XSLT <coughs> transformations. I would write articles in my own vocabulary of XML and then transform them into HTML. And that process worked really well, but I was getting really, really sick of XSLT. I'd gotten good at it, and I knew that this, this, this wasn't the future. So I thought, I wonder what it would be like to try out this whole blog thing in Ruby and give that a spin. So on the two flights from Boston to Frankfurt and Frankfurt to uh, Bangalore, I uh, did the first version of the Blicky program. And uh, since then, everything I've done with my website has been in Ruby. I completely stopped using XSLT, and there may be some bits of it still lying around, but it's only because I haven't bothered to re-implement them. Hmm. Well, well, if you, if you didn't use Rails to write your your Blicky, what did you what did you use for? Uh, I guess you didn't use a framework; you just built it. Well, I used I used XML processing libraries because, as I say, it's an XML transform. So my website is purely static. It you just uses the file system. I my deployment script is rsync. Um, it's all very very simple. I don't see the need for a database because it's only a read-only site. And if you do a purely static site, it does really cache very very nicely. So it's very web friendly. And people are beginning to copy it, cotton onto that now. And and so in the Ruby world, we see Jekyll and and the like to uh, um, handle that. And uh, so. Really, the question is just how do you do the transform? And it's really just slurp up the XML, and then I have a very small class that tree walks through the XML and spits out HTML. And that's been the essence of all of my processing. And it, it's somewhat influenced by the XSLT programming model because I have little methods for each element class um, hmm. that you come across. Um, and so you can certainly see echoes of that. Cool. Uh, but uh, it's really nice, and it was just so much better than XSLT. <laughs> yeah, okay, so so since we're talking about your book, which of the main patterns in your book do you think your your Blicky is using? Is that something like a transaction script? I would say um, transform view. Transform view. Okay. Yeah, I guess some I of transform view. It doesn't really use any of the patterns in the book, of course, because <laughs> the book is all about enterprise applications, which tend to be sort of much more data-intensive, update, read. It's, while mine is very much a very simple 
my website, because it's purely static, it's just a one-way transform. So it doesn't really touch the the the, um, the, the kind of two-step view transform view is is the closest to that. But I don't tend to think of it in in those kinds of terms because it's a different kind of program. Okay. And this, this is a very important point about the book, actually. The reason I wrote this book is because I was I felt that if you were going to write about I mean, there are certain low-level programming patterns that are used quite widely, and the design patterns book captured a fair few of those. But I felt that as you moved into more exploration of how to talk about um, software patterns, you ended up being in a where you had to go for patterns that were specific to certain kinds of applications. I sat in a bunch of patterns workshops around telecoms, for instance, because there were a bunch of people who did telephone switches. And the patterns they used were totally meant nothing to me because I've always concentrated in this enterprise applications world. And so I felt that any patterns that were that I was interested in would come from that particular area and they would be very focused on only enterprise apps. And as I say that, I have to mention that enterprise applications – it didn't have the bad connotations of enterprise that we have now. So really by enterprise applications, I mean typically database-backed systems where you're bringing a lot of data, throwing it up on a screen, allowing people to modify it, running business logic, usually a lot of um, talking to third-party and, and existing legacy systems. So you've got to kind of combine all of that as well. But it's very data-intensive, and it's very much about editing fairly rich data structures and communicating with other systems. That's awesome. In the book, you do actually spend quite a bit of time uh, defining the title, actually. Like, yes. what is a pattern? What is an enterprise application? Why are we talking about architecture? Uh, and actually, I found that section kind of kind of enlightening to read, like, the, you know, what you were thinking about at each level. It's like you wrote that book for me. You started off defining everything. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, with a title like that, you really do have to define what you mean by the title. I and mean, the title really does describe what the book is about, but only if you know what the words mean. And, of course, every word in software development gets overloaded 25 different ways, so we have to be somewhat careful to say what it means. And if you're wondering, is this book for me, the first thing you ha- I mean. My, I always took the line of saying, you know, when you're writing the, the first part of the book, the people are asking themselves, is this relevant to what I need to know about? So in this situation, you kind of have to define what you're talking about early on. I particularly like the definition of architecture as being a pretentious word that sounds important, so you know that what we're talking about is important. Yeah, that has still been my thing. I, I still notice I shy away from using the word architecture. Because it, it does carry a lot of that pretension. And you see that very noticeably in certain communities. Certainly, people around ThoughtWorks tend to be very wary of the word architecture. Hardly anybody puts architect on their business card. And I think, and it's partly sad that that's happened. It's partly because of the fact you run into so many people who do use the word architect who have really distanced themselves a lot from database, day-to-day software development and have lo- lost touch, really, with what the serious issues are. Um, and this is, of course, a, a thread that goes through the Agile community. Mo- a lot of the people in the Agile community, particularly those around the extreme programming part of it, very much are of the view that if you're going to stay technical, even though you've got to operate at kind of a relatively high level and talk about 
fairly broad brush issues, you've also got to be prepared to dive in and work at the code level. If you can't operate at both levels, then you don't really have an understanding of what's going on. Yeah, I've rarely heard the the word architect used in the past few years without ha- having it be prefixed by um, ivory tower. Yeah. Or architecture astronaut, right? Is yep. Oh, right. <laughs> Well, well, you, well you, you, you need architecture to build an ivory tower. It's a building. <laughs> the, the, well, I, okay, so I, I, the, let, let's, not, let's not rag on, um, on ragging on architects too much. Let's talk about what the, what the cool stuff in the book is, right? I, the, the definition of patterns I, I also uh, found really cool. Uh, the book says, each pattern describes a problem that occurs over and over again in our environment and then describes the core of the solution to that problem in such a way that you can use this solution a million times over without ever doing it the same way twice. That's somebody else's quote, not mine. It's got to be. Yes, it's Alexander's one, right? I'm just looking at it. Um, yeah, but that is, uh, that is the essence of what it's about. We're trying to say, I mean, I, I, the way I describe it now, I, I'd have to re- reread how I describe it in the book, is patterns are common solutions things that you run into time and time again, but they're not, you, you can't just cookie cutter them. You can't just throw them into a library and say, it's done. Well, uh, let me go even breeze past that. But there's more, the, the, each time you solve it, there are often little variations. So as a result, it isn't quite the same in the different cases that you use it. I mean, if, if you do run into it at the same time, then yes, you can embed it into a library. And of course, that's what Active Record does. But the point is, I have used the act and seen the Active Record pattern in Java, in .NET, in Ruby, you see it all over the place. And in fact, my when I was writing the book, of course, I wasn't thinking of Ruby's active record, which didn't exist at that time. I was thinking um, the most common one that was most virulently in front of us was the entity beans of EJB. And if you want to complain about active record, you need to spend some time programming with those. <laughs> right. The, hey, hey, Martin, um, the, I, I remember when the, when the whole pattern stuff started to take over in the software design community. I mean, I, I, um, when I was working with Kent in the, I think it was 88, he showed me Christopher Alexander's timeless way of building. And, you know, Alexander's approach on patterns was they were all like interconnected kind of stuff. And then when I, when I looked at the Gang of Four design patterns book, uh, they don't, have much interaction between the patterns that they describe in the book. They're all sort of standalone things, and the the level of granularity that they're addressing is pretty fine grained in a lot of times. And, but I, one of the coolest things about your book, as I was reading it, was the interconnectedness of the patterns. And I think it's because you have these things layered, and that you look at them as different aspects of system building. That it's it's so nice that when I sit you know, sit down and read through a section on a pattern, you say, well, if you're building this kind of application, this pattern works well coupled with this other kind of pattern. And so I I think it's much truer to the original spirit of that kind of mix and match, retarget this pattern however you want to use it in your particular situation. Yeah, and and I think that's part of the nature of, of where I'm at. I mean, with the Gang of Four patterns, they are relatively independent. And, and really you want them to be. I mean, the reason I use patterns as a tool for writing, and I use it for this book, I use it for the Domain Specific Languages book, it's really because I'm trying to deal with a problem of how can you, how can we 
deal with the, the, the overload of all the information that you need to consume. I mean, there's so much stuff you've got to read out there. So you need a way to kind of chunk it up so that I can get to the stuff that I need to read right now to solve this particular problem that I'm dealing with. And I find, and my interest in patterns is there a way of breaking up what I'm talking about into such chunks. So there's a very explicit structure in this book and in other books I've written and other books that people have been influenced by, by me have done, where you've got a short section at the beginning of the book, just 100, 150 pages, which you are supposed to read through from piece to piece. But the bulk of the book is like a reference book where you dip into individual patterns as needed. So and that's purely there so that you don't have to read the whole book in order to be able to get value from it. And so you kind of want the patterns, ideally, to be independent of each other. Now, of course, there are links, and you do have to mix them together. So, um, And I think that's more true for the kinds of patterns I'm talking about than was true with um, the Gang of Fours ones. Oh, yeah, I wasn't trying to be critical of the Gang of Four book. I think that, you know, it stands on its own. But, uh, but you know, it's just saying it was uh, it was really nice to see all of the interconnectedness. And uh, uh, there was a lot of... Um, prescriptive advice in there, which was really great. Yeah, I was just going to say that what Martin was talking about there, that the section at the beginning of the book kind of introduces you to all the scenarios that these patterns are written around. And it's just ridiculously practical. And like, it'll say something like, when you find yourself in this situation, here are your three choices, you know, and then... Uh, yeah, and what are the trade-offs? What are the costs and the yeah. benefits? Right, so, right. Yeah. Well, I think design, program design is all about trade-offs. There are very few cases when you can say, whatever you should do, you should do this. Almost all the time you have to say, well, here are my options, here are the trade-offs between them, and I choose whichever one sucks less. <laughs> nice. <laughs> that, yeah, that's, that's pretty much how we all think, right? <laughs> Every, everything's going to suck. It's what, what sucks less. I have a little yeah. question about patterns in general. It seems like right now the Rails, the Ruby, and particularly the Rails, I think, community is kind of rediscovering patterns. There have been a lot of talks and blog posts kind of pulling out patterns and, and re-exposing a newer audience to them, you know, and a lot of kind of awareness that some of the, you know, some of the, the practices that have been used in larger Rails applications don't hold up and going back to the patterns literature for that. But it's, it's, inter it's interesting to me because, you know, Rails... Well, it's, I mean, it's built on, basically, it's built on your book. I mean, every, many, like half the classes in it are actually named after patterns from this book. And yet we have this phenomenon of people that are, that are basically new to patterns. You know, I, I, when I was learning software, I, I a lot of what I learned was from reading the, the patterns, Portland patterns repository and stuff like that. It seems like there's less work in patterns now. Uh, you know, there are fewer conferences. I was kind of racking my brain. I can't think of the last time I saw somebody go through the process of, you know, documenting an observed pattern in Rails, in Rails development or something like that. I guess the question is, you know, what has happened with the patterns community lately and, and kind of wither pat patterns from here? Well, I think the patterns community went through the usual cycle of enthusiasm and then tapering off. I mean, for a while, patterns were incredibly fashionable and then they lost their fashionability. Mm -hmm. and people moved off into other things. I mean, for me, it was kind of odd. I mean, the patterns community brought together a lot of really quite different people from different backgrounds 
whose really only common thing was that they were exploring this way of writing about stuff in terms of patterns, which was good because it allowed us, I think, to, I mean, I said, I got in, insights into telephone switch design that I never otherwise would have got. <laughs> right. But there wasn't really much holding it together in that sense. For me, patterns are very much a writing tool. They're a way to organize larger bodies of stuff. And I tend to de-emphasize the fact that I'm using patterns even when I'm using them. I mean, at the time, patterns, you know, I had to have patterns in the book title. So this book has patterns in the book title. But my domain-specific languages book is structured in exactly the same way, is, mm-hmm. mo- is pretty much all patterns, but I don't use patterns in the title um, because it's less fashionable now, I guess. But it's still a technique for for trying to organize a large body of advice. I still think patterns um, are a good way to do it. And this idea of naming common solutions, I mean, that appears in other places, certainly in my work. So one of the things that appealed to me about the wiki naming style thing for my blog, hence the Blicky, was because you have these nouns. And every time I'm, I, I want to write something in my blog, I have to think, what am I going to name this in such a way that it's going to fit in with conversation? And then I hope that allows me to be, to focus more on writing for the long term than writing for the short term. Because this is where I think patterns are really interesting, is that they're trying to capture long term knowledge. Mm-hmm. Um, the stuff that I wrote about in that in the Patterns Enterprise Application Architecture book, I think has held up very well it, you know, over the course of 10 years. Um, and, I f- and the Ganga 4 book, similarly, those patterns are still relevant to know about. Mm-hmm. And that's really important because our languages change, our technologies change all the time. But if you can understand core principles of good software design, they're going to last you for a really long time. Yeah, you talked about how it's valuable in writing, but I was actually thinking more like in communication in general, right? I mean, I can say method object and all of us here just start nodding, right? Yeah. That kind of shared grammar. Yeah, you're trying to build up. I mean, it's often people criticize people for, for being heavily into jargon. But the reality is that in order to communicate effectively, you need a jargon in any complicated field. You, and I worked for a b- bunch of time in, in the National Health Service in, in, and, you know, doctors, they use jargon and it's not even in English, right? Because they're using Latin and Greek words all the time. But they have to because how else do you communicate? I mean, can you imagine describing somebody's uh, medical condition using only simple English words with no medical <laughs> jargon in it? It would take you forever. And so we do the same. When you say, oh, this is an active record object, immediately I have a bunch of connotations go into my mind about what to expect about that object. Uh, that's actually something came out of the, out of the, one of the threads on Parlay. I mean, if somebody says, oh, this is a value object or this is a service, I immediately I have a bunch of expectations about how the object behaves, what I expect it to look like, what I expect to do with it. And the more we can share these, then it makes it easier for us to see different code bases and, and understand what's going on. One of the things that really surprised me um, as I was reading the book was that there was a lot of the jargon that I had um, a completely wrong understanding of. And possibly this is because of exposure. And, and as you mentioned earlier, t- terms are often overloaded. But there were, there were like the application controller, for example. I've, I've never thought of an application controller in the same way that the book describes it as being. 